0: As we finish this uh, series on liturgy, um, I, I just want to say one thing. To, so for those of you that call for City Home, that come regularly, uh, we, I have been uh, walking through aspects of our liturgy for, to, to anchor us in our understanding of what we do on Sunday mornings and why these things matter. But for those of you here this morning that, that maybe are newer or maybe you don't profess faith in Christ, uh, what, what I hope you hear is that we have a, a very particular heart for worship, and, and we do what we do for a reason. This is not just empty routine and ritual. And, and so I want you to hear what that heart is. I want you to hear what Scripture has to say and lays out for the worship of the people of God and why these things are important and why they matter. And, and, and I don't want you just sort of just walk away and go, oh, that's nice. But I actually want you to wrestle through these things and consider what, what does it mean to, to worship as a Christian? What does it mean to come on a Sunday morning and, and worship in the ways that God has called us to do? And so, this isn't just for those who call First City home. Uh, no matter where you are in your faith journey, no matter what you believe, even if you don't confess to have belief, uh, God has something to say to you this morning. And so, um, I, I want you to lock in with me and stay with me over the next few moments. But for those of you that are Christians, let me ask you this question What do you do regularly to strengthen your faith? What are the practices that you go through on a daily or weekly, monthly, yearly basis that that help you strengthen your knowledge and your affections for Christ? How do you battle things like maybe anxiety or depression and fear and guilt? How How do you do regular battle with sin? And if I were to have you just list out on a piece of paper all of the things that you do regularly, I wonder, would taking the Lord's Supper make that list? Would, would, would that be something that you would think, this is a regular part of my growing in my knowledge and my affections for Christ and, and dealing with sin and fighting depression, fighting anxiety, fighting fear, fighting guilt, all of those things that the kind of the daily warfare, so to speak, of being a Christian. Would, would the Lord's Supper make that list? You see, for much of church history... This table, the Lord's Supper, or what we often call communion, has been an integral part of Christian worship and Christian living. It has been vital. We jump ahead, you know, we talk about the Reformation. During the Reformation, there was more ink spilled on communion in the Lord's Supper than there was salvation by grace through faith. This was a huge part of the church and the life of the church. Christians saw this as vital to their walk with the Lord. But unfortunately, the church in the United States, we've sort of detached ourselves from that history and that meaning. And, and the Lord's Supper, while we see, still see it as biblical and we practice it, it, it sort of has this kind of, yeah, that's a nice thing that we do on Sundays, however often we do it. And, and we sort of lost touch with the vital aspect it is to our faith and, and what the Lord intends for it to be. So in a sense, we can, we can treat the Lord's Supper almost like Christmas and Easter. You know, something that we do regularly to whatever degree, and and we see, yeah, it's important. We have Christmas celebrations. We celebrate Easter. But let me ask, do Christmas and Easter factor into your day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, wrestle with sin and growth in Christ? Like like you celebrated Christmas however many months ago and Easter however many months ago. Today, this afternoon, is that going to matter? Does that play into when you go home and that, and that, wrestle comes through, whatever type it is, is that Christmas celebration, that Easter celebration factoring into your day-to-day walk with the Lord? Probably not. And so what, what has happened is we sort of pushed the Lord's Supper into that category, something very nice to do, something important, and we, we want to do it and want to honor that, but not necessarily vital to my day-to-day walk And so, as we consider why we take the Lord's Supper, consider the the place that it is supposed to have in our lives as Christians, it's much bigger than just a celebration like Christmas or Easter. It's much bigger than just sort of this nice thing that I do once in a while, and yeah, it was neat and meaningful in that time, but really doesn't have any impact in my day to day. No, this is meant to be something that impacts your walk with the Lord day to day. It's meant to be a regular piece of your growth in Christ. And this is why at First City we have chosen to make the Lord's Supper an important part of our service every week. And so whether this is something that you've been used to doing maybe once a month or once a quarter, or even those of us that take it every week, the last thing in the world is that this should just become rote and routine. It's meant to shape us and form us and strengthen us as the people of God. It's meant to be a vital part of our walk with Christ. And so as we conclude this series, we're going to end sort of where our service almost ends, uh, at the Lord's table each week. And so three main points that we're going to consider uh, as we, we talk about the Lord's Supper. How the Lord's Supper forms us. So talk about formed in past redemption, formed in present grace, and formed in future hope. So turning to Matthew 26, uh, the context here is Jesus is sitting down to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. And wrapped in this meal is sort of a veritable history of of Israel. And and so they're celebrating specifically the Lord delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so for 430 years, Israel was enslaved by Egypt. And God raises up Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go and, Mo, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so God sends 10 plagues. And the final one, the final judgment is judgment on the firstborn of everything in the land. And so for, for Israel to escape that judgment because they were guilty of sinning against the Lord as well, the Lord instructed them, take a lamb without blemish and kill it and take its blood and put it on the doorposts of your house And when the angel passes through the land, he will pass over you. The judgment will pass over you. And so this was a sign of God's redeeming Israel, not only out of slavery, but redeeming them from judgment. And so as the disciples are sitting down with Jesus, this is what they're remembering. This is what they are celebrating. But it wasn't just in in this meal, they weren't necessarily just focusing on that piece of history they, they would have had their whole history in mind. And so after they, are, they come out of Egypt, wandering through the wilderness and God giving Moses the law and the raising up of the kings, David and Solomon and the prophets and, and reminding them that, hey, our fathers fell into sin and God judged them and exiled them because the disciples sat underneath the, the rule and reign of Rome and they recognized, hey, God still hasn't fully redeemed us there is a salvation that is yet to come. And so as they looked back at what God had done in their history, they also looked forward. They would say, God, we still need to be saved. We still cry out. We still believe you are faithful because you've saved us in the past, and it gave them hope for the future. So all of this sort of would have been in view as they're sitting to have this Passover meal. And as Jesus celebrates with his disciples to to commemorate God's redemption of Israel and God's work throughout Israel's history and the hope that they look forward to he does something utterly radical and unexpected he shifts the entire meaning of the meal and thereby shifting the entire meaning of Israel's history to himself he says or the, the text says now as they were eating Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body you see that bread that had one meaning I'm saying now this is my body, this is about me. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This, this cup that you drink, it had a one particular meal in the Passover, now it is about me. So Jesus is completely reorienting their understanding of this meal and their understanding of history. Now a couple categories that we need to sort of understand the significance of what Jesus is doing. The first categories that I want us to consider is this idea of signs and seals. Signs and seals. So, throughout redemptive history, so throughout Israel's history, God gave his people signs and seals of his promises. So, God would make a de- declaration of a promise and then he would give some sort of sign as a tangible way to say, This promise is true. For example, the rainbow. God gave Noah a rainbow as a sign and a seal. Hey, I'm never going to destroy the earth with a flood ever again. Abraham, God gives him the sign and seal of circumcision saying, my promise to you and your descendants in this act of circumcision is a sign and a seal that this is true and you can be assured in this. And so God makes these sure, certain, unbreakable promises and then he confirms the promises with a visual aid, so to speak. Something that is experienced through the physical senses and something that further tells us, hey, this promise is true. So you know the the seal, like a king would have a ring and it had like his seal on it and if he had an official document and roll it up and like on the wax and like put his seal on it saying this is true, this is authoritative. That's what God is doing through his signs and his seals. He's saying this confirms the promise. It has my stamp on it. And so the Passover, as a meal, through the actions of eating and drinking and seeing and smelling and and, and being able to participate bodily, God is saying this promise to save is true. And I'm confirming that to you. I'm sealing that to you. I'm saying, believe it and be assured and confident in it. And so God has Israel strengthened in his promises, not just through mental exercise, not just by kind of in your brain, but through the whole body participating to strengthen, that and strengthen them in that promise. The other category we need to understand is covenant. So God promises to save in a covenantal way, meaning he brings people into relationship with himself. He makes promises, and those promises have the result of, hey, we're going to be in relationship with one another. We're going to make a covenant together. And that covenant offers blessing for those who follow and are faithful to the covenant, but there's also judgment for those who break it. And so if you, you look throughout Scripture, whenever covenant was made, this is what typically happened. Some sort of sacrifice was made, an animal was killed, blood was shed, and in that it was said, if I break this covenant, my, I, am, I am guilty of this blood. My blood should be shed. I deserve judgment. And so this covenant was a serious relationship It had teeth, it had meaning such the extent that if you broke that covenant, judgment would fall. And so when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he goes through this process. When he he makes a covenant with Israel, blood is shed here at the Passover meal and then later at Mount Sinai because that's how serious this relationship is. But here's the other piece of it. Whenever God makes a covenant, he also sets a table. When, When he makes this covenant with Abraham, After making the covenant, he prepares a table, and Abraham sits down and has a meal with him. At the Passover, God makes this covenant to save Israel from slavery and sin, and blood is shed, but then what does he do? He prepares a meal. The same thing with Moses on Sinai. So God isn't just kind of making this covenant in this abstract, cold kind of way. He's inviting them into relationship. He's inviting them into intimate relationship. And so when Jesus sits down with his disciples when he has this meal with him, when he reorients their understanding, this is what he's saying. This promise to save that God has made to you throughout the generations, guess what? It is fulfilled in me. I am the point. History has all been moving towards me and what I am going to do. And so this Passover lamb that we have killed and we are now remembering that that God had Israel kill and the blood was put on the doorpost, that Passover lamb is not the be-all and end-all. It was meant to point to me, meant to point to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins, not just of Israel and Egypt, but of the whole world. And so Jesus is saying that all of this plan that God had been doing, all of these promises to save are now found in him. They're fulfilled in him. What he was about to do, to go to the cross, this was God's ultimate act of redemption. All of their hope, all of their expectation, all of their wanting and longing to be saved All of God's promises right there fulfilled in Jesus. And so, in taking the Lord's Supper, this is what we're doing. We are being formed as the people of God. We are remembering God's great plan of redemption. We're remembering that God has accomplished, He has fulfilled that plan. He's been faithful to those promises in Jesus Christ. And so, we remember what God has done, and that becomes the thing that defines our reality. It's the story that defines who we are, defines our identity. And through the action of taking and eating, drinking, touching, tasting, seeing, this becomes a sign and seal to us that God's promise to save in Jesus is true. And so it anchors us and assures us in what God has done, what God has promised. And so in many, we look back to the past and all that God has accomplished and we anchor our hope there, we anchor our identity there and say, God has acted, he is faithful. And when we come to his table, we remember that Jesus Christ spilled his own blood to pay for the covenant. We remember Jesus Christ was not the covenant breaker. You and I were the covenant breakers. And it wasn't our blood that was shed, even though we deserved to be judged. It was Jesus' blood that was shed for us. And so God brings us into covenant relationship with us. He prepares a meal to fellowship with us. And he invites us to his table to be strengthened in his promises. So that's how this table points us back in the past, to past redemption. But it's not just a sign and seal of what God has done in the past. It is also a sign and seal to us in the present. The Lord's Supper characterizes us, as we've said before, in the present. And how does it do that? Well, let's consider this idea of meal once again. What are the aspects of a meal? What are the elements of a meal? Well, you have invitation, you have nourishment, and you have fellowship. And let's consider these three things. First, invitation. God sends this great invitation out for all to come to his table. And who is qualified to come to the table that the Lord sets out? Well, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 22, and this is the point about who's qualified to come to this table. It's the weak. It's the worn out. It's, it's the, those that are broken over their sin. It's the poor. It's the needy. It's not the self-righteous. It's not those who are depending upon their own performance. It's it's not those who are thinking, it's my goodness and my religious works that allow me to come to this table. No, it's those who recognize, I have no right to be at this table. And yet God invites me to it out of his grace. Because if, if we think we come to this table out of our own qualifications, just fill in the blank. What is that one thing that you think makes you good enough to come to the table? What is the thing that's like, oh, I've done this, and so, yeah, I feel good about coming to the table. Look, that's like coming to a banquet hall with a really nasty, dirty tuxedo on. It it, it doesn't matter how nice you think it looks, it stinks. And that's what our righteousness, that's what our good works, that's what our attempt to qualify ourselves to come to this table ends up doing. We stink up the banquet hall. And Jesus says, those who have come to this realization that I can't bring anything, I don't qualify myself, I can't qualify myself, that's who come to this table holding out their hand saying, Jesus, I'm in need of your grace. And so in Jesus, he invites the weak and the weary and the broken and those who just feel the weight of their sin and they're done with it those who have given up on trying to perform and pretend. That's who is qualified to come to this table. That's who Jesus invites to this table. And when he invites you, he qualifies you with his righteousness. The the garments, the clothes that you need for this great banquet, that's Jesus' righteousness that's been given to you. Those who come are those who have put their faith in Christ. And you see, the self-righteous... You wouldn't be comfortable at this table anyway because it says you can't qualify yourself. You, you, you can't do anything good to, to come to this table on your own. The arrogantly sinful, you wouldn't be comfortable at this table anyway because the bread and the wine say, hey, you're a sinner and you're broken. And so the self righteous and the sinful, the arrogantly sinful, guess what? This table is going to make you uncomfortable. But for the broken, for the weary, For those who want to trust in Christ and find their forgiveness in him, this table offers hope. So that is our invitation. It also offers nourishment. See, our loving Heavenly Father is active to sustain us. He's not left us on our own. Good fathers, good parents regularly nourish and strengthen their kids. And this is what Jesus does. This is what our Father does at this table. Our only hope and our only strength is Christ. We are utterly dependent upon him and we must feast on him through his word and prayer and worship. But but here's what happens. We we forget this or we miss this or our our gaze and our focus and our understanding of that gets drawn away. See, we we suffer. Life gets difficult. We, We have to deal with our sin. We have to deal with those circumstances that cause us to fear cause us to feel weak, those circumstances that wear us out when we're hit with our inadequacies and, and things like anxiety and depression come crashing in and guilt crushes us. There's so much in our life that wants to pull our gaze away from Christ, away from where our true nourishment and food are, and we end up running after other things. And here's the beauty of the Lord's Supper. It offers us in a physical form, in a tangible form, a way to lift our gaze back to Christ. God sets before us a meal in order to lift our eyes back to Jesus, away from our suffering, away from our sin, away from our failures, away from our inadequacy, and on to Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, we have physical and tangible objects that remind us, Christ says, come to my table. All you who are weary And broken come to my table and i will give you rest and here's the sign bread and wine are set before you so come come find nourishment come find your strength come find your hope this is how john calvin explains it from the physical things set forth in the sacrament we are led by a sort of analogy to spiritual things thus when bread is given as a symbol of christ's body we must at once grasp this comparison As bread nourishes, sustains, and keeps the life of our body, so Christ's body is the only food to invigorate and enliven our soul. When we see wine set forth as a symbol of blood, we must reflect on the benefits which wine imparts to the body and so realize that the same are spiritually imparted to us by Christ's blood. These benefits are to nourish, refresh, strengthen, and gladden. Are you in need of nourishment for your soul? Are you in need of strength? Are you in need of joy? Do you need to be refreshed? Oh, then Jesus invites you to his table. The Father invites you to the table to find nourishment for your soul. Come to the table and in the bread and wine find assurance in Christ's promise that his flesh is indeed food and his blood is drink which feeds to eternal life. And so, if you're feeling condemned this morning, if, you're, if your guilt weighs he- heavy on you, know that Christ invites you to his table to remind you that through his blood, you are forgiven and cleansed of your sin. And so, be refreshed at his table. Do you feel trapped by your sin? Do you feel like you cannot break free Well, Christ invites you to his table to remind you that you've died to sin and you're alive to righteousness. And so find strength at his table. Are you feeling tired and worn out because you feel like you always have to perform, never good enough, never measuring up, never quite cutting it, no matter how hard you try, your best laid plans keep falling apart. Well, Christ invites you to his table to remind you that you're clothed in his righteousness, and you are accepted and loved by the Father. You don't have to perform. You're accepted already. And so come to his table and be sustained. How about feeling fearful or anxious or depressed? Oh, Christ invites you and reminds you You're an adopted child of God. You're an adopted son or daughter. He loves you. He's welcomed you into his family. He is with you. Come and rest in that. Come to the table and find rest. And here's what's great about the Lord's Supper. It takes us right to Christ. It takes us right to Jesus because here's what a lot of spiritual self-help techniques do. You you go into a Christian bookstore or go into Barnes & Noble or go on Amazon and and you look for things to try to help you in your faith. What do a lot of those things do? They give you a lot of lists. They give you a lot of things to do that you can't measure up to and you keep feeling guilty about it and you realize, man, I really stink at this thing. But this is what the Lord's table does as a method to build your faith. Takes you right to Jesus takes your your eyes off your performance, off what you need to do, off of all the ways that you're failing and saying, look how Jesus died to forgive you and how he sustains you. And the beauty of the table is it's Jesus that our hope is in. It's Jesus that nourishes us. That's why this table is given to us by our Father. The Lord's table lifts our hearts to heaven and takes the focus off of us. And so it characterizes us, it forms us as those who know they are spiritually needing and starving, so we run to Christ to find our nourishment. And then finally, fellowship. If there's invitation, if there's nourishment, there is also fellowship. Now, we need to understand what remembrance means here, and I've talked about this before, but the idea of remembrance, there's, there's two ways to kind of think of remembrance. One is like the memorial service, you know, you go to a memorial service where someone has, has passed away, and so you remember them, but they're not present. And so you remember all these good things, and there's a, this there's a, there's a sense of like, hey, we're, we're celebrating this person's life, but they're not present. That's one kind of memorial or remembrance. The other kind of remembrance is this, a birthday party or, or an anniversary party. The person's present. You're remembering them, but the person's presence is there to bless you. This is what God says about remembrance in Exodus 20. In every place where I call my, cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you to bless you. God calling us to remember him isn't, doesn't mean that he's absent. He's present. And so in remembrance of Jesus, and remembering what Jesus has done, Jesus isn't absent here. He's present here. He's fellowshipping with us. And that is important. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we're actually participating in the body and blood of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that the bread and the wine actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. But Christ is here spiritually ministering grace to us. He is present at this table And so you are fellowshipping with Jesus. When we come to this table, it is a real relationship we are engaging in. And here's what is beautiful. If I say I'm your friend, you could just be like, okay, that's nice. We're friends, cool. If I invite you into my house, that sort of takes things to the next level, right? Because I'm I'm bringing you into my house, into my home. What if I invite you over to my house all the time? What if I'm consistently inviting you? Wow, wow then our fellowship, our friendship, our communion is growing deeper and deeper. That's a sign that I really want to know you and be in fellowship with you. Jesus consistently invites us. He regularly invites us. He's constantly come over, come fellowship, come have a meal with me. Constantly, constantly. He wants that type of intimacy with you, that kind of fellowship with you. He wants to strengthen your faith that much. So the beauty of this fellowship is that it is regular and consistent. And here's the other aspect of it that's important for us as we consider fellowship. It isn't just an individual meal. This is a meal we take as a family. We do this together. And so as we come, we come as one body to one table And so we are brothers and sisters in Christ who have been reconciled not only to God, but to one another. And so when we take this meal, it strengthens us not just individually, but it strengthens us corporately as a body. And it's very important that we understand that we take this meal in unity. Because what happens if you sit down at a meal with your family and you all are fighting? It gets really messy and hard. And and the fellowship that is there, the intent of that meal and sitting down and fellowshipping with one another, it's broken. It's messed up. It's not what it is intended to be. And so this meal is intended for us to be together and in unity. And that's why scripture puts such a strong emphasis on doing this together. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 11 and you're familiar with the passages where Paul talks and warns the church, hey, don't take this meal unworthily. Don't don't come up and flippantly take this. You need to examine your heart. You need to confess sin if that needs to be done. But the biggest sin that's sort of out front in that passage is disunity. Like the thing that's most at the forefront of Paul's mind is disunity. And so he says, if you come to this table in a sense of where you are disunified, if you are at odds with your brother or sister, it's not that you've lost the invitation and you're no longer invited, but it means you're coming forth and you've forgotten what this meal is all about. You have missed the point and you are in danger of doing violence to the table the Lord has set before us. And so let me encourage you, church, this is one of the best ways that we can consistently work for reconciliation. So every week, if you come to this table, make sure that you're not at, at odds with somebody, whether it be in your family or your gospel community or throughout the church. And if you are, go grab them and say, hey, let's make this right. There's forgiveness at this table. There's forgiveness between you and I. Let's make this right and let's go to the table together, unified. And so we do this each week because it offers us an opportunity weekly to pursue reconciliation. Oh, husbands and wives, kids, families. Each week, this is an opportunity to reconcile if there was anything going on during the week. Friends, gospel community members, family, this is an opportunity for reconciliation each week. But here's what's also fantastic about this, doing this in unity. We can go to one another and say, hey, can I pray for you? Can I love you? Can I care for you? Can we talk? Can we do this in this moment where we've come to the Lord's table each week and, and strengthen that bond that we have? And so it offers wonderful opportunity for us to minister grace to one another, not just kind of isolated by ourselves, as the body of Christ, as family. And so let me encourage you to take every opportunity to celebrate with one another during this time, to pray with one another, to rejoice with one another, to mourn with one another. Oh, confess sin, encourage, praise Christ together, do this together. Because it's a wonderful exercise of the unity that Christ has purchased for us. And so we are formed by a past redemption accomplished. We're formed in a present grace that God gives us, and we are also formed in a future hope. So taking and eating forms us in the hope that we have. Christ told his disciples, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We eat and drink in anticipation. We come each week anticipating the day when we get to do this with Jesus face to face. This meal consistently reminds us, hey, suffering and sin and sickness and violence and oppression don't get the last word. Whatever it is that weighs you down weekly and monthly and yearly, whatever it is that you struggle with, that doesn't get the last word. And this meal reminds you each week of the hope that you have in Christ. And so we eat this meal to be formed by that hope that our anticipation and our expectation may grow that it may strengthen us to keep going, keep confessing, keep pursuing the Lord, keep feasting on him, keep worshiping, keep praying, keep going to the scriptures, keep fellowshipping with one another, keep doing all the things God has called us to do because one day, full and complete restoration and redemption are coming. Listen listen to how Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Think about it. Someday we're going to be gathered around a table with the best food we have ever had, the best drink we have ever tasted. And we are going to celebrate the great redemption that God has accomplished. We're going to celebrate his grace in our lives and throughout eternity just marvel what he has done. We're going to sit at this table and marvel. You remember how I was the last person in the world you think he would ever have saved, and yet he saved me. You remember how my marriage was a wreck, and yet he came, and he brought redemption and healing. You remember the the brokenness that was in my body and in my mind that I, I suffered with? Look at this. My body is free, full health, My my brain, no no more anxiety, no more depression. God has freed me fully. Look at the grace. Look what he has done. All the pain, all the sorrow, gone. One day we're going to be gathered around the table celebrating what Jesus has done, what God has accomplished. And when we come to the table each week, we get a foretaste of that. Just a little bit of a taste of that. Just a little bit of a glimpse of what's coming and that strengthens us. That sustains us. That reminds us that God is at work and his promises are true. So, church, let me ask again as we think about the things that strengthen our faith, that sustain us week to week, as we think about what is vital to our walk as Christians, should not the Lord's table be part of that? If these are the promises, if this is the power behind this table, Should it not be something that we eagerly run to each week? Should it not be something that by faith we embrace and long for and look forward to each week? This is an opportunity to be strengthened in the grace of Christ. And so church, this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week. Because the promises that are there, that Jesus, his body given for you, his blood shed for you, that we are built up in that and we are assured of those truths day in and day out, weekly, monthly, until the Lord comes back. And that we can be a people strengthened to go and celebrate this grace in our city and tell others and invite others to the table that they may put their faith in Christ and come and experience this grace themselves. Amen.